Welcome everyone to episode 7 of the Curseland Podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. For 25 years in Georgia, I watched my mom make the same batch of six light, fluffy biscuits for breakfast almost every Sunday. Then I moved to New York, never to see a light, fluffy biscuit again. From TheAtlantic.com Why Most of America is Terrible at Making Biscuits This story is by Amanda Mull I arrived in the city in 2011, just in time for southern food to get trendy outside its region, and for three years I bit into a series of artisanal hockey pucks, all advertised on menus as authentic southern buttermilk biscuits. With every dense, dry, flat, scone-adjacent clump of carbohydrates, I became more distressed. I didn't even realize biscuits could be bad, given how abundant good ones were in the South. Even my mom, a reluctant at best cook, made them every week without batting an eyelash. The recipe she used had been on my dad's side of the family for at least three generations. The more bad biscuits I ordered in New York, the clearer it became that there was only one way out of this problem if I ever wanted to have a decent Sunday breakfast again. I had to make the biscuits for myself. I did not anticipate the hurdles of chemistry and the American food distribution system that stood in my way. I asked my mom to email me the recipe, and it was three ingredients, self-rising flour, shortening, and buttermilk, mashed together with a fork. I am not an accomplished baker, but I cook frequently, and this was the kind of recipe that had long been used by people without a lot of money, advanced kitchen tools, or fancy ingredients. Confident that I could pull it off, I marched right out and bought the ingredients. The result? Biscuits that were just as terrible as all the other ones in New York. Not to be dramatic, but my failure destabilized my identity a little bit. What kind of southerner can't make biscuits? In subsequent attempts, I tried everything I could think of to get it right. I worried about buttermilk quality, so I bought an expensive bottle at the farmer's market, which did nothing. I tried different fat sources, including butter and lard, which made small differences in flavor and texture, but still resulted in a shape and density better suited for a hockey rink than a plate. I made sure all of my ingredients were ice cold when I started mixing, which is a good tip in general, but did not fix my problem. I kneaded the dough more or less, made it wetter or drier. The only thing left was the flour, but I figured it couldn't be that. Wasn't self-rising flour the same everywhere? We had just used regular grocery store flour back home. Out of ideas, I did what any self-respecting millennial would do. I googled it. Then I called my mom. Then I placed an Amazon order. The one ingredient I took for granted had indeed been the key all along, says Robert Dixon Phillips, a retired professor of food science at the University of Georgia. To make a good biscuit, you want a flour made from a soft wheat, he says. 
It has less gluten protein and the gluten is weaker, which allows the chemical leavening, the baking powder, to generate carbon dioxide and make it rise up in the oven. It turns out that in most of the U.S., commonly available flours are made from hard wheats, which serve a different purpose. Hard wheats are higher in gluten protein, and when they're turned into a dough, the dough is very strong and elastic and can trap carbon dioxide, says Phillips. If you want to make bread, you don't want a hard wheat. Northern biscuits suck because they're made with bread flour. At first, this information felt like a huge relief. I just had to buy the right flour. I'm great at buying things. Unfortunately, the problem was a little more complicated. According to Sarah Simmons, a chef from South Carolina who has owned food businesses in both New York and the South, finding soft wheat flour north of Washington, D.C. is tricky, even for pros. Northerners don't have it. I couldn't get it commercially even, she told me. We had to make our own flour blend, and I spent probably nine months working on it, trying to get the right amount of protein. The crux of this problem is a brand called White Lily, whose name and logo is familiar to virtually all Southerners but foreign to most people outside the region. White Lily was founded in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1883, and although other contemporary brands now make serviceable biscuit flour, it still dominates grocery baking aisles across the Southeast. Biscuits are now as common and inexpensive staple bread in southern diets as bagels or Kaiser rolls are in New York, but for generations of rural, working-class southerners, they were a luxurious treat. When my grandmother in western North Carolina said bread, she meant cornbread, Phillips told me. The biscuits were a special thing. We'd have them on Sundays. Because of that, White Lily became an indicator of culinary success and the gold standard of southern kitchens, and its place in both the grocery market and Southern culture has endured for more than a century. In 2007, the brand was bought by J.M. Smucker, and the prospect of moving White Lily's flour production out of the South caused such a panic among Southern cooks that the New York Times covered it in depth. For knowledgeable bakers and regional expatriates outside the South, though, that move presented a flicker of hope. If a national brand owned the company, maybe its products would finally get national distribution. Ten years later, that hope has not come to fruition. J.M. Smucker did not return a request for comment, but the product finder on the White Lily website turned up no retailers north of Richmond, Virginia. The only bright spot out west is a single Walmart in Oklahoma. Dallas and Houston both lack any vendors. If you're on the west coast, forget it. Displaced southern bakers have been known to stuff a bag in their suitcases when visiting home. You can order the flour for delivery on Amazon, but it'll cost you anywhere from 10 to $15 for a bag, many times the in-store retail price of around $2.50. And you better plan ahead, because in the week before Thanksgiving this year, all the self-rising options had already sold out. In modern food distribution, seasonality and origin are often lost entirely from the foods Americans buy. If it's cold where you live and you want a banana anyway, there's nothing stopping you from having one. In that context, soft wheat flour's stubborn regionality is almost charming. According to Phillips, biscuits likely developed as a southern staple food specifically because the flour necessary to make them was, and still is, made from the kind of wheat that's farmed there. Most of North America's hard wheat is grown on the plains, from Kansas north to Canada, 
but because of climate differences, the South has always had the softer kind, and cooks in the late 1800s didn't have food service giants like Cisco trucking in mass-produced flour from thousands of miles away. As a result, biscuits are uniquely Southern, and they seem determined to stay that way. Unless you're at my Thanksgiving, of course. I've got a couple bags of the good stuff squirreled away in the fridge. Before a passing ship had rescued the remaining inhabitants of the island, four women and seven children, the world knew nothing of the lonely atoll known as Clipperton Island. With the rescue of the emaciated inhabitants, the true and horrific story of Clipperton came to be known. From the website ghosttheory.com, a story by Xavier Ortega, The Mad King of Clipperton Island. Off the coast of Colima, Mexico, across acres and acres of deep blue Pacific water, sits a lonely island, an atoll whose only inhabitants consists of crabs, birds, iguanas, and the hundreds of sharks that patrol its glassy waters. With scarce vegetation and a toxic lake that makes up most of Clipperton, the island is hardly a place you'd consider paradise. Yet throughout the ages, there has been attempt after attempt to colonize Clipperton and capitalize on its abundant supply of fresh guano. Mining for guano had grown into a lucrative market, and by 1899, with permission by the Mexican government, the British Pacific Island Company acquired the rights to the several guano deposits across Clipperton. Within weeks of signing, the mining company had built a settlement and began work. That same year, Mexico's president, Porfirio Diaz, ordered that a lighthouse be erected on the island. It was to be manned at all times, and a lighthouse keeper was eventually placed on the island with the rest. Within months, a few dozen men and their families became the first and only residents of the lonely speck of land amongst an endless, shimmering blue field. The British had started to work on the land, planting palm trees, a vegetable garden with imported soil, and several homes scattered across the ring. It had become an ongoing effort to cultivate the arid land. The adventurous families and workers were visited by supply ships about every eight weeks from a port in Acapulco, Mexico. Fearing losing the land, Mexico sent a group of 13 men and their families from the Mexican army to stand guard on Clipperton in 1906. Acting as the governor of Clipperton was an officer from the same army, a man named Raymond Arnaud. Raymond Arnaud was a decorated officer in charge of the military garrison on Clipperton. He spoke Spanish, French, and English, and had prior experience with French nationals. Captain Arnaud was President Diaz's first choice for Clipperton. Arnaud came home to a tumultuous Mexico from his travels to Asia. A revolution was tearing throughout Mexico. Greeted by the chaos that rang across the country and an official order to inhabit the desolate island, the captain felt that his order to govern Clipperton was a way to exile him from Mexico. Having arrived in the midst of the revolution might have given the captain a sense of paranoia, however his mind was put at ease when he was told that he had been chosen personally by the president for the job. 
The captain accepted the order to guard Clipperton and protect Mexico's sovereignty over the island. Although they were supplied with care packages, food, and tools, the island still fought to keep its reputation as an inhospitable place. Within a few years, the mines that provided endless amounts of quality guano were becoming too much of a financial burden on the British Pacific Island Company. The world market had a growing number of guano providers, making the colonization efforts on Clipperton non-profitable. In 1910, the British, losing money and effort, decided to remove all but one personnel from Clipperton. There had been around a hundred inhabitants on Clipperton Island. Most of them were British employees, Mexican soldiers and their families, except for a German, Gustav Schultz, representative of the mining company, who had suffered from a mental breakdown, and also the lighthouse keeper remained. Little by little, the British ships began leaving, taking with them those who had enough of the island. Then, the conflict of the Mexican Revolution escalated, which only brought worry and despair to the island's inhabitants. Because of the escalating conflict of the Mexican Revolution, the families in Clipperton were soon forgotten. The ships that they had come to rely upon for survival had stopped coming. With failed agricultural projects, food became the islanders' top concern. It was then that an American ship landed on Clipperton, bringing supplies, provisions, and much relievement to all. The Americans advised Arnaud and his soldiers that it would be best to abandon the island, given that the revolution was Mexico's top and only priority, and not the few dozen families guarding Clipperton. Gustav Schultz boarded the American ship and left with the crew, abandoning Arnaud, his soldiers, and the lonely lighthouse keeper. Although there was talk of abandonment by their country, Arnaud and his men stayed true to their sworn duty to protect Mexico's claim of Clipperton. Clipperton had now been completely abandoned by the British and the Mexican government. By then, there were around 26 people left on the island. It would be months before some of the inhabitants began to suffer from the lack of food and proper medical care. Surviving mainly on crabs, birds, coconuts, and the occasional fish, many began to perish from the effects of scurvy. By 1917, most of the males had died. Only Arnaud and a couple of other men remained. Around this time, Captain Arnaud claimed to have spotted a passing ship. However, he was too weak and sick to row out by himself. He instructed his remaining men to help him row out into the ocean to flag down the ship. It would be the last time the women would ever see their men. Whether the captain saw an actual ship or hallucinated one will never be known. The only thing that is known is that after they rowed out into the water, they never returned. The women, including Arnaud's pregnant widow, had no time to mourn, for they had spotted a large hurricane heading towards the island and needed to find shelter quickly. It was Alicia Arnaud who gathered all the remaining women and children inside the basement of her home. That night, amidst violent winds and thundering rain, she gave birth to their fourth child. When the hurricane broke and all appeared calm, the women and children emerged from the basement only to find their settlement had been destroyed, completely obliterated by the hurricane. They huddled together, trying to figure out what they could do next when out stepped the lighthouse keeper. Victoriano Alvarez was essentially the last man on Clipperton. The women watched as he collected all the weapons he could find and threw them all out into the water, keeping only one rifle for himself. 
Alvarez soon claimed himself as the King of Clipperton and would unleash terror across the island. For the next year or so, Alvarez ruled with complete control. He enslaved the women and used them as sexual slaves. He would constantly rape, threaten, and beat them and there was no one to stop him. No one really thought about the hermit that lived in the lighthouse until it was too late. Alvarez, suffering from some sort of mental breakdown, killed a mother and daughter who refused to sleep with him. He used fear and violence to subdue the women and children and would constantly apply beatings to keep them all in check. As the months passed with no signs of rescue, the King of Clipperton ruled with impunity. He would grab whichever women or young child he wanted and rape them at gunpoint. When he was finished with 20-year-old Aldegracia Quiroz, he moved on to a 13-year-old named Rosalia Neva, and so on and so on. It was 20-year-old Tirza Randon who was the most outspoken of the women. She spoke out against the barbaric crime and rule Alvarez possessed on Clipperton and wanted him dead. Alvarez knew this and would constantly beat and rape her. He would tell her, in front of the others, that if any rescue ship were to arrive, she would be the first one dead so that she could not talk about the atrocities he was committing. The lighthouse keeper, the man once referred to as a hermit, was now a bloodthirsty, sexually depraved psychopath, and there was no one to stop him. Around 1917, fighting against disease, starvation, and a sexual predator, Tirza Randon decided that enough was enough, that Alvarez had to go. One July day, Alvarez returned to the main settlement with Tirza. He held her captive in his lighthouse all night, beating and raping her. Alvarez then told Arnaud's widow to present herself at his hut near the lighthouse first thing in the morning. Sensing this as an opportunity, Alicia Arnaud and Tirza Randon began plotting Alvarez's death. On the 18th of July, 1917, Arnaud and her seven-year-old son, Ramon Arnaud Jr., as well as Tirza Randon, left the main settlement and headed over to the lighthouse keeper's hut. There, they found Alvarez sitting outside. He was roasting a bird when the two women surprised him and began their attack. Tirza grabbed a hammer from the hut and began attacking Alvarez. Alicia then grabbed an axe and swung wildly at Alvarez. A hammer to the head knocked Alvarez to the ground. It was there that the women unleashed their rage against the king. Alicia Arnaud told her son to run into the hut and fetch the rifle. While he left, the two stabbed, kicked, and chopped away at the king's body, slashing his face until completely mutilated and stabbing his body until it was completely drenched in blood. It was a death tailored only for a mad king. Ramon Arnaud Jr. could only stand aside and watch as the two women unleashed their wrath on the lifeless body. It was then that Ramon spotted a ship. It had been over two years since they laid their eyes upon a vessel, and there it stood, a gleaming beacon of hope. USS Yorktown The American gunboat which was patrolling the waters happened to come across the island. The boat and its crew was out patrolling for any German U-boats rumored to be stationed around the Pacific. The Americans made their first attempt at reaching Clipperton. They sent a smaller boat ashore, but given the tumultuous waves and the high and sharp rocks that surrounded the atoll, it made their rescue mission seem almost impossible. The small boat had no other choice but to return, leaving the women and children in the island to speculate that they had been abandoned once again.
The women and their children now knew that they were going to face certain starvation. Seeing their rescue boat head back to the ocean brought upon a somber mood. They all stood and watched as the boat sailed away, essentially signing their death certificates. Equipped with a rifle and bullets, whispers of suicide began making rounds amongst the doomed mothers. Unbeknownst to the grieving women and children, the Americans attempted a second rescue mission to which they had succeeded in landing on the shores of Clipperton. The American sailors met the malnourished inhabitants and what was left of the settlement. They noted that the children appeared small for their ages, which was due to the rampant disease and starvation that loomed over the island. The sailors then boarded alongside with the Clipperton survivors, and they left the island, leaving the Mad King's body to rot in the sun, becoming a meal for the crabs. Four women and seven children were all that remained of the attempt at colonizing Clipperton. The official report, written by Navigator Lieutenant Kerr of the USS Yorktown, talked only about the rescue of the inhabitants of Clipperton. In its entirety, there was no mention of the lighthouse keeper or the rapes and murders that took place on the island. The men figured that it would be best to protect the survivors from any potential legal actions of what really happened on Clipperton Island. When the Yorktown ship pulled into a Mexican harbor, they were greeted by stunned officials and family members who had been told that all of the inhabitants of Clipperton had perished. For 17 years, the sailors and survivors of Clipperton kept silent about what really happened on Clipperton Island between 1914 and 1917. When Chet Atkins was born, he was nothing but a poor country boy in Luttrell, Tennessee. When he died, he was regarded as one of the founding fathers of Music City. Atkins' transition from country hick to sophisticated music executive mirrors the changes he made in music, moving country and western from its roots as raw hillbilly music to a more polished style that appealed to 20th century suburban audiences. From the website, PorterBriggs.com, a story by Nick House. Four guitarists who changed Southern music, part one, Chet Atkins. Born in 1924, Chet Atkins began his musical career playing the ukulele and the fiddle. At age nine, he allegedly traded a pistol for his first guitar. When Atkins was 11, he moved to his father's farm in Georgia to treat his asthma. Atkins' parents divorced when he was six. During his time in Georgia, he dedicated himself to learning guitar, practicing at school, and even in his bed. He also experimented with musical equipment as a young person. He was an early adopter of guitar amplification and built his own pickup and amplifier for his guitar. After he dropped out of high school, Atkins became a professional musician, working at radio stations and with country acts as a backup guitarist. Despite his talent, his time in the radio business was often not rewarding for him. His shy personality made him unpopular with fans and co-workers, and his musical blend of country and jazz was criticized as either too country for pop or too pop for country. Atkins' career finally took off in the 1950s when he signed a deal with RCA Victor and then moved to Nashville to work both as a solo artist and a session player. 
His jazz-infused playing breathed fresh air into country music, and he quickly rose from playing as a session guitarist to producing songs and albums. His production work downplayed traditional country instruments such as steel guitars and fiddles and replaced them with strings, pianos, choirs, and a sophisticated pop sensibility. This new style became known as the Nashville Sound, and depending on how you feel about it, it was either a much-needed renaissance for country music or a desecration of the art form by cynical studio executives. Atkins himself described the Nashville sound as the sound of money. As a producer and manager at RCA, Atkins signed or produced country legends such as Waylon Jennings, Charlie Pride, Hank Snow, Jim Reeves, and Don Gibson. He was also responsible for RCA's outbidding Columbia to sign a Memphis boy named Elvis. In addition to all this, he released many albums during the 50s and 60s and had several instrumental hits, including his rendition of Mr. Sandman and Yakety Axe. Atkins stepped back from producing and executive work in the 1970s, but still continued to play music and record albums. Many of his albums are collaborations with other musicians, such as Les Paul, Susie Boggess, Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, and Atkins' own hero, Merle Travis. Atkins continued to play and record until his death in 2001. He told Music City News in 1996, I'll continue playing as long as people want to hear me, and when they don't, I'll put it all under the bed. Atkins will always be remembered as the person who brought country music into the 20th century, adding a new level of sophistication to the art form. If Chet Atkins' only accomplishment had been creating the Nashville Sound, he would have still changed the course of music. The Nashville Sound created a new group of country stars who blended country and pop and appealed to suburban audiences. It also paved the way for movements like outlaw country, new traditionalism, and alt-country, which explicitly set themselves against whatever was popular in Nashville at the moment. The Nashville sound, however, was just an extension of the Chet Atkins ethos. Atkins embodied clean sophistication in all his musical endeavors, not least in his guitar playing. He was a tight, precise, methodical guitarist with tone that was as clear as a bell. If you listen to a Chet Atkins recording, you'll notice that not a single note is out of place. Atkins learned his style of finger-picking from Merle Travis, who played separate lines with his forefinger and thumb. Because Atkins learned from listening to Travis's recordings rather than watching Travis, he mistakenly played his parts with three fingers instead of two, adding a new level of complexity to Travis picking. Although he had immense technical talent, Atkins knew both how to take center stage and how to play minimalist guitar parts that emphasized the singer rather than the guitarist. Forever experimenting, he built and modified guitars and recorded in a home studio when he wasn't at the office. His fans include Mark Knopfler, Tommy Emanuel, Jerry Reed, and even George Harrison, who wrote the liner notes to Atkins' Beatles tribute album. In 1816, local legend has it that a ship dropped off an unknown couple in Alexandria, Virginia. 
The woman was extremely ill, possibly from typhoid fever, and couldn't wait until their final destination to receive medical attention. From the website, mentalfloss.com, a story by Stacy Conrad. Is this the most mysterious grave in Virginia? Alas, it was too late. She died a few weeks later while boarding at Gadsby's Tavern. No one had spoken to her, or some say even seen her face. Anytime anyone saw her, her features were hidden by a long, black veil. Her husband quickly arranged for a burial at St. Paul's Cemetery, then borrowed money for a headstone from a local merchant named Lawrence Hill. Under the circumstances, you might think the mysterious man would keep the epitaph simple, resulting in a more affordable stone and a smaller loan to repay. Instead, he went the opposite route, having a huge marker etched with this wordy tribute. To the memory of a female stranger, whose mortal sufferings terminated on the 14th day of October 1816, aged 23 years and 8 months, this stone is placed here by her disconsolate husband, in whose arms she sighed out her last breath, and who under God did his utmost even to soothe the cold, dead ear of death. It was followed by some verses adapted from Alexander Pope and a Bible quote, adding even more to the bill. The man spared no expense, and it's no wonder. He apparently had no intention of paying back the loan. The female stranger's husband skipped town without paying doctor bills, lodging bills, or funeral and burial fees. He did leave behind some currency, but it was forged. And when he left, he took more than his wallet with him. He also took his wife's identity. Rumors ran rampant, even 70 years later. In 1886, the Lawrence Gazette reported on several theories, including the popular notion that the woman was really Theodosia Burr Austin, the daughter of Aaron Burr. Austin had been lost at sea around 1812, but conspiracy theorists speculated that she faked her disappearance to escape a loveless marriage. Why the stranger's husband would permit no one to see her face after she was dead gives rise to the supposition that he may have feared its recognition by those who looked upon it, the Gazette said. Outlandish, perhaps, but even more so is the tale that the woman was actually a man, Napoleon Bonaparte dressed in drag to be exact, attempting to escape his exile. Yet another story declared the woman was named Blanche Forden, and the man claiming to be her husband had actually hypnotized her into marrying him, though she really loved another. Sadly, if you're looking for answers, you're going to be disappointed. We still don't have any. The female stranger remains as mysterious today as she was 200 years ago, although her grave has become a local tourist attraction. After watching non-stop coverage of the hurricane and the incredible rescues that were taking place, I got in bed at 10.30 on Tuesday night. I had been glued to the TV for days. Every time I would change the channel in an attempt to get my mind on something else for a few minutes, I was drawn right back in. I finally turned off the TV and picked up my phone to do a quick check of email and Facebook. 
I read an article about the Cajun Navy and the thousands of selfless volunteers who have shown up to the city en masse. The article explained they were using a walkie-talkie type app called Zello to communicate with each other, locate victims, get directions, etc. I downloaded the app, found the Cajun Navy channel, and started listening. I was completely enthralled. Voice after voice after voice coming through my phone in the dark, some asking for help, some saying they were on their way. Most of the transmissions I was hearing when I first tuned in were from Houston, but within 30 minutes or so, calls started coming in from Port Arthur and Orange. Harvey had moved east from Houston and was pummeling East Texas. From the website cron.com, a story by Holly Hartman. I downloaded an app, and suddenly I was part of the Cajun Navy. Call after call from citizens saying they were trapped in their houses and needed boat rescue. None of the volunteer rescuers had made it to that area from Houston, but as soon as the calls started coming in, they were moving out, driving as fast as they could into the middle of Harvey. As I was listening, I quickly figured out that there were a few moderators on the app that were in charge and very experienced in using this method of communication during emergencies. One in particular, Brittany, was given directions, taking rescue requests, and prioritizing calls and rescues. At one point, she said something that made me realize she's a nurse, so I immediately understood why she was so effective in this situation. A couple of other women who were working from other parts of the country, not Houston, who had been taking calls from victims and logging the information, came on the line around 12.30 and said they had to sign off so they could get to bed. They asked if there was anyone who could work through the night to keep taking rescue requests and log them. I set up and turned on my light. I timidly pushed the talk button and said, I can. I got a two-minute training session and a good luck. One of the key suggestions of the training session was that when I received a rescue request, I needed to try to call the person making the request if possible to get more details and to ensure that it was a legitimate request. Unfortunately, there had been reports of people calling in fake requests and then robbing the volunteers when they arrived. Despicable. After I received each request and had called the person making the request, I was to log their information on a designated website, let the requester know the ID number they'd been assigned, and move on to the next call. Within minutes, I was on the phone with Karen. Karen was in a house in Port Arthur, sitting on her kitchen cabinet with seven other adults, two teenagers, and a newborn. The water was almost to the countertops. I assured her we would get someone to her as soon as we could and told her to stay safe. It was 1.15 a.m. By this time, the Cajun Navy rescuers had begun arriving in Port Arthur. They were begging to be let in the water, but the Coast Guard, understandably, wouldn't grant them permission because the storm was just too strong. It was gut-wrenching to hear so many calls coming in and having to tell them there was nothing we could do until the storm calmed down a little. The local authorities were doing the best they could, but they were far outnumbered and also unable to get to everyone in the treacherous conditions. I took several more calls and quickly realized there was no way I could call to verify every request. They were coming in faster than I could type them into the website databank. I would listen to the request, write down their info, and start typing it in. In the time I could enter one request, three more would come in. 
I was originally just sitting up in bed with my laptop on my lap, phone in hand, and a notepad on my nightstand. Pretty quickly, I moved to my dining room table, plugged in my computer and phone, and poured a huge glass of iced tea. I started out taking notes nice and neat on printer paper. That quickly turned into chaotic scribbles. I was having trouble reading my own handwriting at times. I got a request from Chad. I had enough time to call him. Trapped in their house, he and his wife had water up to their chests. He told me they were about to go to their attic. I begged him not to do that and told him he had to go to his roof instead. He said there was no way for them to do that. I told him he didn't have a choice. I asked him to keep calling 911 over and over. When he hung up, I texted him other numbers to try. The Coast Guard, the Jefferson County Office of Emergency Management, the Air Force. It was 2.20 a.m. I spoke to another woman whose name I can't even remember. I didn't call her directly, but we had a few exchanges through the app. She told me she and her kids were sitting on their kitchen counter and needed rescuing, but she was scared to get off the counter when boats arrived because there were snakes in the water in their house. I took request after request after request. Name, phone number, address, number of adults, number of children, number of elderly, medical conditions. I would then type this information in as fast as I could so the dispatchers could send the rescuers out. After submitting the information, I received an ID number that I was supposed to relay to the person requesting the rescue. We asked them to remember the number so they could give it to their rescuers when they were finally picked up. We could then mark them safe in the system, avoiding the dilemma of rescuers looking for people who had already been saved by someone else. It was around this time that I heard one of the dispatchers who goes by Goose ping into our channel to let us know that the Cajun Navy still had no boats on the water. Conditions were still too dangerous. I had mistakenly assumed we had boats in the water by then. No wonder we had so many people desperately begging for rescue. No one was coming for them. All night long, I'd been telling them to hang on. We'll be there soon. I didn't know I'd been lying to them. Around 3 a.m., I got a request from a teenage boy in orange who was screaming so hysterically I couldn't even understand him. I got his phone number and told him I'd call him directly. The second he answered, he was screaming that his brother and cousin were laying in the backyard, unresponsive, possibly electrocuted. I'm sad to say that I don't even remember the boy's name. I know I asked, but in the conversation that ensued, I forgot it. He told me that his brother and cousin had been near a shed in the backyard for over an hour, but they couldn't get to him because of the rising water and the storm. I told him they needed to try to get to them and that I was getting help to them as soon as I could. I think he thought I was an official 911 dispatcher as he kept asking me why the police weren't there. He said he'd called 911 at least a hundred times and they never answered. He then told me he and another cousin were going to go outside to check on the young man in the yard. I told him I'd wait. He put the phone down. I listened and waited. I could hear panicked conversation and rain and sloshing water. After a very long seven or eight minutes, I suddenly heard the most blood-curdling, gut-wrenching screaming I've ever heard. I heard a little girl screaming at the top of her lungs. I heard a boy's voice screaming, no, 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 over and over. I felt nauseated and completely helpless. I started screaming into the phone, hello, hello. He picked up the phone. 
Miss, I think my brother is dead. He's not breathing. Should we do CPR? What do we do? Do you know CPR? Yes, try CPR. What do I do? He screamed. Before I could answer, he dropped the phone again. More chaos, more screaming, guttural, desperate. He came back to the phone. He's not moving. I don't know what to do. I have to go get my cousin. I asked him to put his mom on the phone. A woman's voice, much calmer than I expected. Hello? Hello, I'm Holly. I'm trying to get some help to you. Tell me what's going on. What's your name? Margaret. My boy is gone. His lips are purple. He's gone. I desperately searched for words. Margaret, I'm so very sorry. Where is your nephew? He's in the yard. They're trying to get to him now. Who else is with you? Margaret told me she was with her other kids, four or five people total, if I remember correctly, and that they were up to their waists in water. My boy is on the table, her voice cracked. They're out there trying to get my nephew now. Please get someone here. Please, she begged. I assured her we would, but I knew there were still no boats in the water. I hung up and called the Coast Guard number we'd been given. They answered immediately, but the person I was talking to was actually in Houston. I quickly explained who I was and what I had just experienced and gave them Margaret's address. He assured me he would let the Coast Guard in Orange know about the family. I hung up and called the Jefferson County Office of Emergency Management. Shockingly, he answered on the second ring. Address, he barked. Hi, my name's Holly. I know why you're calling. Where are you? I don't need help. I'm working with the Cajun Navy dispatchers and need someone to get to a family I just spoke with. I explained the situation and gave them the address. Jesus Christ, he sighed. He sounded completely defeated. I know you're doing the best you can. Just please get to this family. We will. We're going to have a lot of deaths here tonight. I got up from my table to take a break and try to process what had just happened. I had just interjected myself into a family's most horrible moment. As quickly as I had crossed paths with them, they were gone. A 15-minute interaction that will stay with me for a lifetime. I went to the bathroom, refilled my tea, walked around a bit, thinking to myself, What are you doing? You're not qualified to do this. And then I sat back down and went back to it. Around 4.30, I got a request from a young woman in Beaumont who was trying to get her 87-year-old grandfather, Chester, rescued in Port Arthur. He lived alone and had water to his shins. I couldn't hear her well through the app, so I called her directly. She told me her grandfather couldn't get through to 911 and she was really scared for him. I assured her that someone would get to him and that he would be okay. There were still no Cajun Navy boats in the water. At some point, I'd heard another volunteer mention that a woman who lived on Sassine Street and her three kids had retreated to their attic to escape rising waters. I pinged in and told the volunteer that she had to call the woman back and tell her to get out of the attic and go to her roof. The volunteer came back on the line and said that she'd talked to the woman, but she refused to move because her kids couldn't swim. I asked if she had anything they could use to break through the attic roof. No. We got word around 7.30 a.m. Wednesday, seven hours after the first calls started coming in from Port Arthur, that the Cajun Navy had finally been let in the water. Reports of rescues started coming in. I was finally able to mark one of my cases safe. I kept taking calls all day Wednesday, 
Throughout the night and into Wednesday, I was texting with Chad and Sandra, the young woman, calling for her grandfather. Chad told me the water was almost to their necks and they still hadn't gone to the roof. Chandra texted me repeatedly, asking why no one had gotten to her grandfather. The water had risen to his chest. I promised her someone would get there. The rescues and the safe status reports were increasing by the hour. I turned on the TV at some point and started seeing scenes of the same people and situations I was listening to on the app. Around 10, I heard one of the rescuers who uses the handle Cowboy ask about the woman in the attic on Sassine Street. I immediately pinged in and Cowboy asked me to call him. He wanted the address again and wanted to know when we had last heard from the lady in the attic. I told him I had no idea because the volunteer who originally took that call had signed off. Cowboy said he was a few minutes away from Sassine Street and didn't know if he should request another boat with breaching equipment or a helicopter. I suggested a helicopter, hoping the family had somehow made it to the roof. The calls for rescue were slowing down but continued to come in at a steady pace. Every 20 to 30 minutes, I'd remind the rescuers that Chester, Saunders' grandfather, still needed a rescue from 19th Street, and I kept telling Saunders that they would get there. She finally said she was just going to get in the car and drive from Beaumont to Port Arthur to get him herself. I told her to be careful and let me know she made it. 20 minutes later, she texted me to say that they'd been stopped by floodwaters and couldn't get there. She told me she was afraid he was going to die. Around 11.30, I realized I hadn't heard Cowboy on the line with a report about Sassine Street. I asked on the app if we had any update. My phone rang. It was Cowboy. We got to Sassine. It's confirmed. Confirmed, I frantically asked. Confirmed what? What does that mean? Does that mean they're dead? Yes. Water past the roof. They never left the attic. We sent divers in. I thanked him for letting me know, and off he went to the next rescue. At 3.02 p.m., I got a text from Chandra that said, Ma'am, I thank you so much. He is on his way to the bowling alley. A few minutes later, thank you, ma'am. He was on a boat at first, now he's on a truck. I let out a huge sigh of relief. I think I may have actually said, thank you, God, out loud. I texted Chad at 5.30 p.m. to see if he was safe. I didn't hear back from him until 7.30 Thursday morning. We are safe now. I pinged Goose to ask him if he knew Margaret, the mother who lost her son and nephew, and her other kids had been rescued. He said they had. I have texted Margaret to ask her how she was doing. I still haven't heard from her. I've been scanning reports from Orange to see if her family has been mentioned. I need to know the names of the two boys who died. At 6 p.m. Wednesday, I closed my laptop. I'd been awake 34 hours and wasn't even tired. I was emotionally drained, but there was no way I could have slept right then. I thought back on the last day and a half and couldn't believe what I had just heard and experienced. Even as I type this, it seems surreal. I don't know how police officers and firefighters and 9-11 dispatchers and EMTs do this every day. What I do know, I'm grateful beyond measure that they do it. And thank God for the Cajun Navy. How many more people would be dead today if not for our first responders and the thousands of volunteers here? What if a flood of this magnitude had happened 20 years ago, before cell phones and social media? The deaths would be in the hundreds. I saw a meme on Facebook today that said, Someone needs to erect a statue honoring the regular dude with a bass boat. 
It was meant to be funny, but it's actually spot on. On Thursday, I got another text from Chandra. It was a picture of her and her grandfather. I sent a selfie back to her and told her I was going to find a way to meet them in person someday. I really hope I get to do that. That concludes this episode of the Cursed Land Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>